Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara and welcome to The Bay. Local news to keep you rooted. Landing in a new country is never easy, even if you're landing in a place like the Bay Area, which is already home to so many immigrants, refugees, and people who've sought asylum. And between the war in Ukraine, chaos in Afghanistan, and the ongoing crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border, this topic has been on our minds a lot. Recently, our friends at the KQED Live Events team hosted an event called Finding Asylum in California. KQED Newsroom host Priya David Clemens talks with immigration editor Techie Hendricks, visual artist Caleb Duarte, and refugee resettlement director Fauzia Azizi to share their observations and experiences of dislocation, migration, and the journey to make California home. Today, we want to share that live event with you. It's a little taste of the kinds of events our KQED live team is cooking up this year. So now I will pass it on to Priya. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as like the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. So I want to start with a discussion of just a definition of terms. There are so many different phrases and words that we use here when we talk about displacement and people finding a new home. There's asylum, refugees, immigrants. Can you kind of talk us through these different elements and different experiences? Absolutely. So migrants, people who are moving from one place to another, we think of migrant workers, people who've been displaced, Um, immigrants living in a country that's not their own, sometimes by choice, sometimes by force, um, maybe coming for a work reason or a family reason or something else. And then refugees and asylees or asylum seekers, the people that we're really focused on tonight, 
are people who have been forced from their home. And there's a very specific definition in U.S. law and in international law under a 1951 refugee convention that to be uh, eligible for for refugee status or asylum, um, you have to have a well-grounded fear of persecution in your country on the basis of your race, your religion, your nationality, your political opinion, or your membership in a particular social group. The theory is if your country is, you're in danger in your country, your government's not protecting you, then the international community needs to step in. And I think what we're seeing today and in recent years is that that's really being put to the test. Right, and it's so on our minds right now because we're talking about three and a half million Ukrainians fleeing their homes and Russians also. Uh, Taiki, what are you seeing in terms of the current news? Are any of them making their way to America, here to California? Sure, I mean, Ukrainians... Most of them are in Europe. There are people who have family and friends in the U.S. who are trying to come here. Um, But they are encountering something that, and I would say also Russians, who, you know, don't want to be part of this invasion. But for the last two years, there's been this Title 42, which is a public health rule that was put in place during the pandemic by President Trump to to keep migrants out and including people who were asking for asylum, not giving them the chance to make that case. The Biden administration uh, made an exception to Title 42 for Ukrainians, so it's much easier now for them to come and ask for asylum. But not so for the Russians and not so for the many, many Central Americans and Haitians and people from some African countries that are in great distress who have also been seeking asylum here and seeking a way to come in and, and, you know, not necessarily fleeing outright war, but the legacies of war and of U.S. intervention, as Caleb was, was mentioning, collapsing governments and corruption and impunity and, and violence. So that's all going on in the border cities in northern Mexico. And, and Fazio, you were a young girl in Afghanistan when the Afghan-Russian war began. When you're seeing these images of what's happening in Ukraine right now, how, how are you taking that in? How are you absorbing that? I mean, it's uh, take me back to all those memories that I had when I was um, in Afghanistan as a young girl seeing um, Russian soldiers all over the city, like the tanks, and also for them to engaging with the individuals. And uh, collaborating with the communist regime at that time. And they were, there was an ongoing war that almost continued for 10 years uh, between uh, Russian army slash communist regime against then Mujahideen. And this 10 years of war brought humanitarian crisis. Massive people has been killed. Millions of people was disappeared, uh, millions of individuals fled in neighboring countries like Iran and Pakistan. What I see and witness right now with Ukraine, my heart goes to these people, but the situation was not different in Afghanistan. The only difference is probably there was not a lot of social media coverages, mm-hmm. but the situation was as similar as it is right now and people experience uh, chaotic situations 
um, millions of he- uh, people still um, does not have the closure mm-hmm. what their, where their family members are because they disappeared in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. And still they're waiting with the hope that one day they will come home. Caleb, how much do you take inspiration from the news that you're seeing? How much of it is personal stories that you're hearing from others? Where do you um, come up with the ideas for the installations and the work that you do? Um, I think growing up, I grew up as a you know immigrant, pastor's kid. Uh, I think it's interesting uh, how we all have a different idea of the world based on our immediate surroundings. Um, and so working, you know, three weeks, two months, sometimes uh, three years with certain communities, uh, the relationships, the, the culture, the music, it just brings me back to, to that childhood uh, connection, right? Um, to that sense of community. And so I think that's what really drives the work. And I think most of all is, is seeking out um, how art has accompanied us uh, from the beginning of through the evolutionary process, right? How we tell stories through objects, through our bodies and through poetry to get that, that history moving forward uh, in face of such violence and genocide and especially the history of the Americas in, yeah. in that sense. So yeah, I'm interested in how stories are moved, uh, memory, how memory is moved through the body and through theater um, and just exploring that. Yeah, I think it's what inspires me, yeah. Would you share with us a little about your own experience of displacement and making a home? Well, yeah, I mean, as an immigrant Chicano, there's always that thing of, of finding place, right? And so I think, I think a lot of folks have that no matter where you come from, you know, especially now in this digital age where we're always being pulled to different places. And, and so finding community, finding connection, I think it's a, a huge uh, human yearning um, and so I, I think I, when I work, when we work with communities and movement, we do see that connection, that connect, that, that connection, right, between each other. And so that's, that's what kind of inspires a lot of this work. Fazio, let's turn to the work that you do right now. You help refugees settle here in the Bay Area, and particularly Afghan refugees. Um, there are some basic things that the U.S. offers refugees. What does a resettlement organization like yours do? I mean, just let's start with that resettlement is not a luxurious package at (laughs) all um, from the federal uh, level. However, in a local level, we um, are serving refugees, special immigrant visa holders, uh, parolees um, that has been given to recent evacuees of Afghanistan. Also, we are serving um, religion minorities and their uh, Lautenberg program. That program is specifically designed for former Soviet Union folks, as well as Iranian. Uh, We are also serving LGBTQ community. We are serving high medical needs um, folks, and also uh, an accompany minors, uh, individuals who are a victim of uh, tortures and trauma. And the services that we are providing is really uh, robust uh, services. It's from being involved in pre-arrival process, 
um, to securing an apartment for that family, applying for their public benefits, as well as navigate them through the medical system, connect them with resources like ESL classes, school enrollment process, and also kind of help them to kind of transit to the new life by providing some culture orientation uh, for all those families, um, starting a new life and like coming as a refugee in a country is never a soft landing. Um, uh, however, our agency, I'm, I'm like so proud of the agency I am because it's really hard to live with what package as, like this federal like resettlement package, it's just providing $1,000 uh, cash for each individuals. And with this, I live that's in it, cost. Ongoing. That's, that's it, That's one time. That's one time grant through the federal contract. Mm -hmm. And also they are eligible for uh, public benefits, which is cash aid, food stamp, and medical. And cash hit for one single client is $200, like almost $200 for food, mm -hmm. and uh, most likely about $550 cash aid. And the market cost and the housing cost in Bay Area is not even enough for the deposit, or it's not even enough the first month rent. However, our agency goes raise money and uh, like a lot of work goes to that, raising money, collecting gift cards, household items, furnitures, to be able for us to provide those services. Fazia, tell us a little bit about how many families you all are helping. I know last year in um, August, Afghanistan in particular had you know, a lot of turmoil and people were coming, uh, and your organization had a lot of work to do at that point. Has that leveled off at all, or is, is it growing, continuing? Uh, a little bit because military bases are closed now. Um, we had a high volume of arrivals through the military bases um, until February 15. Mm. And, um, we, uh, and afterwards, of course, uh, there was many, many individuals, Afghans, that were part of that evacuations. They were in a military bases. However, they did um, independent departure, and they came by themselves in Bay Area and were seeking services. Unfortunately, because resettlement agencies were at their capacity, they were not able to provide services right away, and we are just working through that um, uh, waiting list. So, so far, we have resettled 540 Afghans since August. And uh, at least 200 of those individuals are uh, walk-in cases. And where are they settling here in the Bay Area with the cost of housing so high? It's, it's the living cost is really high. And majority Afghans are resettling in areas like a Concord, Pleasant Hill, uh, all over Anyak, Brandwood, uh, Bay Point and, and Alameda County, it's more like a San Landro area, like Auckland and these places, but the living cost is really high. The scarcity of the housing is high. Taiki, I want to turn to some of the work that you've been doing mm -hmm. for people, you know, as you're, as you're interviewing people who are just coming and are trying to work their way through the system. You've specifically been focusing on immigration courts 
here in San Francisco. And there is a backlog, not only here in San Francisco, but in other courts across the nation. Can you talk us through what the situation is and the needs that people really have for representation in particular? Sure. I mean, so there's people who have been designated as refugees in another country, as Fauzia was and as some of her clients are, get this package of support meager as it might be or insufficient in the expensive Bay Area, but it's, it is some support. When people are coming as asylum seekers, they're kind of coming on their own. They've made their way to the U.S. on their own, and then they're asking for this kind of protection. And if you came across the border or entered the country without authorization, then the way that you ask for asylum is through the immigration courts, through a deportation proceeding which is different. If you flew in on a visitor visa, tourist visa or student visa, and then you asked for asylum here, you would go through the uh, asylum office and it's a less adversarial Mm. uh, process. But I've been really looking at the uh, immigration courts. And as you say, there is this epic backlog. It's never been this bad. And it's up to like each time I look at the website, it's more people. There's a 1.7 million cases backlogged in the U.S. immigration courts. San Francisco has a big court and one of the worst backlogs here as well. Um, There's, you know, there's understaffing and underfunding. The pandemic certainly made it worse because things got shut down for a long time. Um, But also uh, the Trump administration was prosecuting a lot more people and funneling them into the immigration courts. And then we do have a lot more asylum seekers who have been coming into the country. So the, the delays lead to um, these kind of effects like people that I've met who are preparing to make their asylum case. They prepare and prepare with if they have a lawyer and and then their case is, is rescheduled and canceled. And there's a mm. sort of a trauma to to kind of like going back through like this is what happened to me and and having, having to relive it. Case. And re- right. Yeah. And. I I did a story recently. uh, I met a Honduran woman who had come across the border with her children seeking asylum, fleeing violence. She was trying to do everything the right way. She she was checking in with ICE uh, as requested, and she intended to go to her uh, asylum hearing in immigration court. But there was a clerical error when they took down her address, and she didn't get... It was the wrong address, and she didn't get the notice uh, for her hearing. She missed her hearing. She was ordered deported in her absence, in absentia. And she went to her next ICE check-in, and they said, we're going to deport you today. Wow. And her children were back home some 50 miles away. <sighs> she walked out of the office and burst into tears. Some immigrant advocates were leafleting outside the building that day, and they saw her, and they said, like, are you okay? What's going on? She explained it. They took her to a nonprofit legal service organization, and these lawyers like jumped into action, and they were able to get her case reopened, and she was able to make her case for asylum, and she had a strong case, and she did win asylum. But it was just, it was like this lucky moment when these people encountered her. But if not for that, she would have been deported. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, to me, speaks to... You know, the, the dysfunction in the courts and the lack of, of, of due process. 
Let's go to a question from the audience. This is for Caleb. Caleb, what inspired you to pursue art as a medium to express what's happening on the border? What makes an artist an artist? Oh, I don't know. I was a, <laughs> a painter studying painting. I just love, love the whole idea of, of painting images and, and the, the texture, the alchemy of, of spreading pig, pigment on the surface. Um, the thing with that is that it was very focused on a, a European kind of idea of what art is. And mm. so I went to India, to Cuba, and I started seeing art within people not trained in the arts. And mm. so that kind of uh, celebration, resistance, struggle really inspired me to think about art as the body, as action, as political action. Um, and so it really changed my perception of what a painting was. And it's more about uh, public interventions. The Black Panthers do it, did it. The Zapatistas in Chiapas use the body and visual culture to demand drastic change. Um, there's just a lot of evidence of, of this form of art making that kind of breaks the definitions of art. And so that's, that's kind of like why we're exper exploring this type of, of work. Is it fair to say that you see yourself as an activist as well as an artist? No, because I, 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 working with activists, I mean, wow, the work that they do. I think what we do is we um, kind of we divorce images and words and sound bites and materials, and, and we kind of construct a, a certain other thing so that we can see it brand new again, right? And mm -hmm. sometimes we see an image over and over where it loses its, its poetic function, right? Um, children in cages, kind of after a while, it's just normal, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, a brown, brown bodies and the masses moving towards over here after a while, it's normal. And so I think artists working with activists and lawyers and, and uh, leaders, uh, we have the ability to kind of shift a little bit of the narrative to, to give it a new angle, maybe a new human angle when it starts to lose it. You said something about this poetic resonance. Yeah. And I think it's sort of, for me anyway, it helps me sort of see and think about these things more from a heart center than mm -hmm. the, the cerebral kind of gets in there, sneaks mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. past the defenses that mm -hmm. we have otherwise. Yeah. A question for Taiki. Taiki, what kind of rights do asylum seekers have while their applications for asylum are pending? Right, so if you've submitted your, your application for asylum, then you should be able to get a work permit. Mm. Um, and you're allowed to be here, but... Uh, there are, in many cases, uh, asylum seekers who come across the border are detained. So they're, they're actually trying to make their case from immigration detention, from ICE detention, mm -hmm. um, which is like, you know, get your hands tied behind your back. And, mm -hmm. um, so it's a, precarious, it's a precarious position to be in, and it can go on for a long time. Uh, so, Taiki, the barriers that people face as they are coming here from other countries. Mm -hmm. Is it the same regardless of where you're coming from? Or do we see that it is different based on your country of origin? Well, I mean, I think we've been touching on that a little bit with, you know, the Ukrainians getting an exemption around this mm -hmm. Title 42. Uh, and even, I mean, some of the history of U.S. refugee law goes back to a kind of an anti-communist sentiment on the part of the U.S. government and saying, okay, if you're, you know, if you're leaving the Soviet Union, if you're leaving Cuba, if you're leaving 
um, communist-controlled Vietnam. Like, these are people we're opening our doors to. And uh, we saw it play out with uh, Central Americans where Nicaraguans were leaving under the Sandinista period were, were given asylum. Salvadorans and Guatemalans who were fleeing right-wing military dictatorships that were propped up by the U.S. were not, you know, initially. And then there, you know, there have been some, some tweaks and adjustments to that over the years and efforts to, to kind of level things out. But I think there, there can often be a political component. Um, and then, you know, as we've been witnessing, mm-hmm. sometimes even a racial component. Fauzia, anything you'd like to add on that? I mean, uh, I, I see what Taigi is saying. Uh, for me, as a, as a person who is running the resettlement agency, um, we do not discriminate people sure. based on their status or where they are coming. Right. As a resettlement point of view, as a person who is running a refugee program, um, the core value of my agency, the mission that my agency has, that we are treating every human being and every refugee who comes in our door equally, disregard, mm-hmm. of, uh, disregard of their religion, their um, color of their skin, and their uh, gender, uh, like their gender or uh, what their beliefs are or their religions are. We are not discriminating cl- our clients based on their status or based on what country they are coming from. They are all receiving the same amount of services um, for every single individual, regardless if they are coming from Afghanistan, from African countries, coming from Guatemala, coming from Syrian countries, every single individual who comes in our door receives the same amount of services. Fauzia, I'd love for you to share as we are starting to close out the evening. You have um, a poem from your homeland that sort of speaks to some of the themes that we've been talking about tonight. I wonder if you'd share that with us in Farsi first and then um, English. Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm sure it will not sound as good in Farsi, but I will try to say the a translation in English. Um, so it's one of my favorite poems. Bani Adam Azoi که آفرینش زیاد جوهرند چو عضوی بدرد آورد روزگار دگر حاصف آرا نماند قرار تو که از منت دیگران بیغمی تو که از منت دیگران بیغمی نشاید که نامد نهند آدمی Human beings are limbs of one body that in creation are made of one gem when life and time hurt a limb, other limbs will not be at ease. You who are not sad for the suffering of others do not deserve to be called human. Thank you. It's beautiful. Taiki Hendricks, Fazia Azizi, Caleb Duarte, thank you all for being here tonight and thank you for this fascinating and powerful conversation. Thank you. Thank you. That was KQED Newsroom host Priya David Clemens, immigration editor Taiki Hendricks, visual artist Caleb Duarte, and director of refugee resettlement at Jewish Family and Community Services, Fauzia Azizi. You can watch the full event with visuals on YouTube. Just search KQED Live. 
For more of the amazing events our KQED live team is working on, visit kqed.org slash events, where you can find more info about an event happening actually this Wednesday, March 30th, at KQED's headquarters. I'm Erica Cruz-Guevara. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time. What's up, everybody? I'm Dizzy Jenkins, and I'll be returning to KQED for an evening dedicated to the rhythms and sounds of bomba, an Afro-Latin diaspora. Join me and host Cecilia Phillips on March 30th at 7 p.m. as we dive into the cultural and spiritual significance of bomba. Tickets available at kqed.org live. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.